0: Welcome to Hot Plate, a post foodie podcast. I'm your host, Joshna Maharaj. Today on Hot Plate with guest host Pei Chen, we have fresh ideas for 2021, Chinese protest recipes, why we won't pay more than eight bucks for pho, and David Chang's rage. Hello and welcome to Pei Chen as our guest host. Pei is a TV and radio host, a food and lifestyle expert on various TV shows, and she's a food and travel writer for publications like The National Post, The Globe and Mail, Chatelaine, and Canadian Living. Uh, Pei also hosts a podcast called Here's the Scoop. She was born in Taiwan, raised in Nova Scotia, and now she's based in Toronto. Pei, welcome! Hi, I'm so glad to join you. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really really excited about this conversation. Uh and we are here. It's it's awesome to have you as our first um guest host in 2021. Uh where there's a lot to talk about. 2020 was a mega year. Uh so let's <laughs> just jump into it, huh? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so uh, obviously January is resolution time. uh, But as I was thinking about that myself, I was like, man, this year has got to be different. We can't all just have to like white knuckles to break bad, like breaking bad habits just feels like a thing that we don't, we can't worry about right now. Um, And so I, uh, I, I did some digging around to see what the vibe was about the, you know, about resolutions and food trends, because obviously the food trends that we predicted for 2020, uh, did not actually come true. You know <laughs> I mean? We didn't actually see yeah. that, and a bunch of other stuff showed up. Uh, and so I did some research just to see the how how far into 2021 that 2020 spirit seems to go. Um, and so uh, the nice people at Food and Wine just sort of tossed something out there, and I thought it was really interesting to see that the like the home baking and the uh, restaurant experiences at home seems to really continue because we are not sure about when we'll all finally be able to be back in a restaurant together. Uh, but I'd love to know what you're thinking about uh, and what feels, you know, you 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 have a, a very cool sort of different perspective on this industry than I do. And what are you seeing and what are you feeling like at this point?
1: Well, it was interesting because the article that you, you're referencing in Food and Wine, um, where they talk about some of the trends for this coming year, are so based on how we eat versus, I think, lists of years past, right. which were very much about very specific items we would be eating. Mm-hmm. In recent years, it would be like the new superfood. So, totally. yep. Is it- Chia seed, you know, quinoa, and and everybody would just kind of gravitate, uh, you know, crickets as protein, which never yes. really did take off in North <laughs> America. Yeah. Um, and so I think people look to that for like, oh, what are what are these trends we're going to see online? Like charcoal, everything, rainbow yes. foods, and the list that uh, Food and Wine put out, which I think would be quite similar to maybe other publications, um, is very much about the way we prepare food how we experience it instead of honing in on an ingredient or a style of food or a particular cuisine so things like meal kits which before were always the um i guess the HelloFresh, chef's plate kind of meal kits where everything came packaged individually just to help you get dinner on the table quicker but then we realized with the pandemic that Uh, you know, the restaurants were had to change and chefs had to find a way to, you know, still stay in business and come up with these really lovely gourmet meal kits, which I have experienced as well in in the past few months. And I think obviously that will continue. And people who maybe didn't think about um, purchasing these might see it as now an option, because I think a lot of people just got a little sick of their own cooking. Yes. And I, I said that very early on in the pandemic, which is like, when I cook at home, it's pretty simple because what I enjoy is the experience of dining out with friends and eating foods and, and, you know, the ingredients that I don't necessarily keep at home. Um, and now I have to eat at home all the time. So I want to have, uh, different flavors, uh, without necessarily doing all of the the work myself. And I think that's going to, um, continue to be something that we maybe change through the year. So restaurants mm-hmm. might, mm-hmm. you know, see, um, that they can, they can branch out. So it doesn't just have to be the, the comfort foods that we're used to, but maybe there's ways of doing, uh, like, zoom cooking classes with that chef and the great thing about that is there could be a chef in another city that you would have never been able to meet or do a cooking class with right and now you can have that
0: experience i taught a cooking class recently for somebody in australia did you really i did i did it was amazing (laughs) and it was like midday here and it was early morning for them and they just figured it all out to be like searing meat and all this kind of stuff that early but this is a it's a gift of our zoom lives i think for sure
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I miss eating in restaurants and I, you know, I did some of the patio meals during the summer when um, like our numbers had been a little bit better. uh, And I just, you know, relished in that, but there's a lot of foods that I don't know how to cook and that I probably wouldn't bother to cook for myself at home Um, that uh, you know, if maybe there was a way to get the the ingredients uh, portioned off and I could watch the chef cook along um, might make it a bit more interesting. And a lot of there have been some of those sort of experiences where you can um you know you'll get either a shopping list or maybe if you're local to whoever's organizing it you get the the package sent to you and to be able to follow along is is kind of fun. It's like, "Oh, I made this dish that I would have never made before."
0: Yeah, exactly. And and you get like it's a really rare glimpse because we never get the chance to stand beside a cook in their kitchen. And, exactly, you know, and, and watch exactly how brown this this becomes, or you know what what precise shape they've cut something into. So that is a very rare and special thing, I think i and
1: also we live in you know we live in Toronto, which it gives us access to a lot of different restaurants, great chefs, a lot of different cuisines and ingredients. And I sometimes forget that, you know, my mother who lives in Nova Scotia does not have the same access Mm, uh, and neither do friends who live in smaller cities or smaller towns. So we have a lot more available to us regardless. Uh, And then in the other cities, it is a lot harder to find certain things and ingredients or to experience certain types of cuisine. And this could be one way of, of bridging the gap a little bit.
0: It's really it's it's a very like it's been a difficult moment but it is very exciting and I I was really curious to sort of imagine what bits will stay you know what what stuff about our wild 2020 lives will actually be the new way we do things uh, or at least yeah, for, I, you know, I for mean, a little while what do you think
1: yes absolutely i think uh, i think the only the way to keep things a little bit fresh maybe in 2021 is is for, you know, restaurants and chefs to find a way to uh, make what they have to offer seem um, maybe exclusive or unique. Then you go like, oh yeah, I've heard of this, you know, chef or maybe this restaurant or even this home cook who's doing something really great in Winnipeg. And let me just you know, either maybe it's like purchasing a ticket or something like that online and taking part in it. And I think uh, I think actually, you know, we speak of chefs and restaurants. I think a lot of home cooks have actually tapped into this market as well.
0: All right. One of the some of the things that I'm really excited about on this list are are things like uh, fermenting and preserving uh, and more of that kind of stuff. There's also kindness. uh, And that is super, super sweet. And of course. Uh, For me, because of the kind of chef I am, there's also uh, the overhaul of the industry is amazing that it's there, rethinking our business. And then there's a piece they talk a little bit about uh, chefs in the role of political activism. Uh, And, of course, you know me well enough and you know that that is my thing. And that that got me really excited. Right. Because it's like you've just said, it is a pretty dramatic shift from the way we t- we forecasted trends uh, in previous years. Uh, this is so much more about our behavior than actually what we're putting in our mouths, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think people are really um, getting on board with that. And for a lot of diners or customers, perhaps they weren't necessarily aware of the um, the impact that they have with the choices that they were making in terms of what they eat, where they eat, who they support. So I think that's going to be really positive moving forward.
0: Okay, Pei, I'm so excited to talk to you about this this cookbook, this Chinese Protest Recipes Cookbook. It has come to us from uh, Clarence Kwan, who really appears to be a bit of an enigma in our city's food scene. Um, and we, we've we chatted about him uh, a bit before on the podcast, but now we have the book uh, and we have uh, sort of the impact and the response to the book. Uh, and so essentially for listeners, uh, this is a um, uh, a young dude who has put together a a cookbook, essentially. But the line on the, the title of the book, I'm reading it now, it says, if you are a cop, you do not have permission to cook this. <laughs> Chinese protest recipes with Clarence Kwan. And he did this. It's an online PDF that you can, you know, I think there's there's a sort of nominal or pay what you can uh, fee to, uh, to download it. But essentially, uh, he has really, really strong objectives. There's three objectives. One, to support Black Lives Matter. Two, to raise awareness about racism and white supremacy. And three, to resist through Chinese food. So this convergence of food and resistance and subversion is like, it makes my heart sing. Uh, And I have loved this and I have loved uh, the allyship, right? Because essentially what he's talking about is really pointing to uh, early days of the pandemic when there was such huge amounts. And it continues, right? Racism towards uh, folks with Chinese and Southeast Asian roots, specifically Chinese, obviously. Mm -hmm.
1: I think it's a great way for him to tie in um, a, an important global cause to something that's very personal, but also global, which is food, right? right? Like, and and I think a lot of people are really interested in in different types of food, and whether or not you are uh, Asian or Chinese, chances are you've enjoyed the food as well. Right. So right. it's and trying to, I think, also um, rally people who sometimes don't feel like they're part of a issue. And now I know that when, uh, like when you mentioned like the the link to the pandemic and how, and it continues now, um, there's been a lot of uh, racism, attacks, violence uh, towards people uh, from, I guess, you know, I'm gonna use generic, like a, a Chinese or Asian background mm-hmm. um, who may not even be from China, but people will just make assumptions. Right, right uh and and it continues and it's particularly terrible I know a lot of people have said like oh thank god we're in Canada and because in the U.S. there have been some really Mm. horrific stories there's horrific stories in Canada as well and I think we have this habit of sitting back and giving ourselves a pat on the back and saying like oh it's not so bad here like thank goodness you know Mm -hmm. um but that doesn't that doesn't change things it doesn't do anything to have that sort of complacent attitude and then i think you know with george floyd and black lives matter uh and having and then tying that in it as well um when that uh when black lives matter was was really um catching people's attention and and grabbing people's interest and wanting them to speak out and and be active there was a lot of uh, talk within the, you know, Asian community. And I mean, even like talk like online, on Instagram, on social media of things like just because we're talking black lives matter and we're talking black and white, it does not mean that we as Asians, the Asian community should sit back and think it doesn't involve us. It does. We are, you know, we're all intertwined. Uh, we are, we've been the diversity higher as well. We've been the, you know, quote unquote, the minorities, um, and, and so there is power in, in numbers and in rallying with other, uh, groups and, and being allies. And I think that's kind of the message here too, is that like, okay, because Black Lives Matter, uh, was about the black community. We, as a a community that has also been targeted by racism, uh, you know, should care about this as well. And there is, to be honest, there's a lot of, Um, There's a lot of racism between other cultural groups. And I think people are a little embarrassed to admit that sometimes because we are the ones who are oppressed or targets of so much negativity that it seems a little distasteful or embarrassing to admit that.
0: While I completely agree with you that we cannot put our heads in the sand and imagine that Canada is some kind of racism-free utopia, right, and that we just sort mm-hmm. of wag our fingers at what's happening in the U.S., um, there is something about this place that has us all, you know what I mean, that, that, that I, ideally, anyhow, makes space for all of us. Um, and that, to me, is a really interesting piece because we, uh, our conversation about racism can never be just a black and white conversation.
1: Right. No, and right. I know that some people would argue like, oh, you know, certain people are being left out. I'm like, but this was very much about, you know, Black Lives Matter had a very um, specific focus. And yep. I think that, I mean, that goes back to what a lot of people should not have said, which was, well, all lives matter. But it's like, that's not the point of this. Not at um, not. And, you know, I guess going back to this, this online cookbook that you mentioned, um, it's, it's an interesting way to i think remind people uh, so whoever his audience might be i'm sure there's a lot of in- people in the asian community but otherwise as well um it's an it's another way to keep the the conversation going i think and to keep it top of mind for people
0: right right it's uh, i agree and and he the one of the recipes that he's got is a beef ho fun uh, and he says that it's his his ultimate comfort food that he craves constantly, uh, and he's he's decided he that this is a quintessential Cantonese dish. Um, and what one of the things I love so much is he has in the in the breakdown on this recipe he says if you have referred to the coronavirus as the Chinese flu or kung flu, you are not allowed to cook this recipe. <laughs> There's <laughs> um, so many people who can't cook these recipes. <laughs> Very exclusive. I, I when I read this, uh, it's he he draws some very clear lines, right? And says very sharp things like, if you have ever said this, then you cannot cook this recipe. Uh and and obviously, you know what I mean, it's it's forceful language, but I was really, I was trying to think about what that actually means and what he's trying to cultivate by this. Uh, because it's very, it's just like a different perspective on the you're with you know you're you're in the no or you're not in the no and if you know and and that it's important to draw that line. How how do you feel about this? Do you do you feel like the <laughs> exclusivity is a, a useful tool or is it just sort of maybe a gimmicky thing?
1: I mean it's 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 pretty tongue in cheek. Like cops are gonna show up at your door if you cook a recipe uh, when you've clearly said XYZ right. or if you've called it the Chinese virus or you know something like that um i mean maybe what the book could be off the top is like if you are racist don't cook from this right and right and most people will be like i'm not racist
0: (laughs) right (laughs) and And, and then continue right
1: yeah yeah so but i think what it does by him having that sort of disclaimer or whatever on, on the recipes it's a reminder it's like hey have you ever done this? Mm-hmm. Have you ever said this?
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: may not have been aware when you did it, but uh, it's it's a way to remind people. Like, okay, did, did you date, do this, say this, or encourage this? Have you thought this? Um, that's not okay. Don't make this right. recipe. Well, you could still make it, but at least you've been reminded of something that you've said or done that was inappropriate.
0: Yeah. Well, some, one of what I love here is there's like an accountability piece, right? The message is, uh, you can cook these, you can enjoy this food, but only if you have not, you can't do it. If you have, you know, out of the other side of your mouth said racist things or, you know, been divisive. It's like, you can't actually do both. You, uh, you, you don't get access to this if you don't have respect uh, for the culture and that. Uh, that that speaks to me. I think that's really true and smart.
1: Yeah, and I think it'll uh, it'll make some people think. Josh and I wanted to talk about something that uh, sort of was brought to my attention again just the other day, yeah. and it comes up quite often online on social media, uh, and that is the expectation of certain foods, and I guess I mean by you know certain cultural foods that should be and always should be cheap. Mm. And I use the example of, um, just two days ago, I went to East court, uh, barbecue, Mike's barbecue, a place that I've been wanting to go for a while. My friends who live in the area, um, near North York, uh, love it. And I posted a photo of this lunchbox, which is rice and veg. And then on top of it was four different kinds of meats and it's Mm. $9. So it's an amazing value. And you know, everyone's like, wow, this is, looks great. Uh, or they've been and they know it and they love it. And I had a few people write to me and say, you know, I wish they'd raise their prices, because it skews how we perceive the value mm-hmm. of food. And I agree with that. And I think of the fact that like my parents who've been uh, vendors at the Halifax farmers market for over 30 years. right? Um, you know, my mom hesitates to raise prices and she, you know, I think for 10 years didn't raise prices on egg rolls. And then she raised it 10 cents and, you know, got some questions and we do, we expect certain foods to be cheap, like a bowl of Chinese noodles or ramen, for example, you know, it should yep. be like $12 if it's 15. Ooh, I'm not sure. But yet a, another form of noodle, like pasta i've been to very beautiful italian restaurants and i've paid 25 30 dollars easily yes. for that you know for yeah. for it to have five clams right. in right. there um and there's this expectation i guess for certain you know cultural or ethnic foods if we're going to use the terms that people are familiar with uh to be like dirt cheap like cheap and cheerful yes. and i know that there's been some discussion. Um, Lately, about even using that terminology, you know, cheap and cheerful, and that it bothers some people and and trying to look at ways that we can uh, change our perception of it. And I'm not sure how we do that. I mean, it's easy to say, well, raise the prices. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, then you get this huge backlash.
0: Uh I love this cuz my my people have the same experience right there's a notion that Indian food it's from a little hole in the wall place and it's being served in a styrofoam container so it should be cheap uh, and delicious and and somehow you like people expect that they should be able to get away with something you know it's uh yeah. it, this is weird kind of notion uh, and when I think about where the roots of that are from, I know that it, for my community, it's also because there is only so much Indian people will pay for food. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's also, I get that. <laughs> like It's yeah. an, it's an internal as well an external thing, right. Even just thinking about like, when I get my eyebrows done, uh, getting your eyebrows threaded costs $2, uh, right. And it's always going to be that way because it, my people will not pay more. Um, and, and so I wonder, do you think that there's kind of like a. Like this, this, this expectation has been sort of seeded by some of an internal cultural position, but now it is so entrenched that it's kind of locked us into this thing in a way that we need to find a way to break out of, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think some of these restaurants, for example, are in um, places that, so like a Chinatown, for example, so where they really serve their own community and, If I'm going to generalize, they might might be working class. You know, uh, they don't have a lot of money, so uh, paying seven dollars for lunch is that—that's the extent of it. That's it. But in a city as um, I don't know as cosmopolitan as as Toronto, for example, where you will have restaurants that are actually in very, you know, hip places like you know along king street the expectation it almost doesn't matter where it is unless it's in a very expensive five-star hotel maybe you'll pay a little bit more but you still would you know you'd still balk at paying too much for dim sum for example mm-hmm. dumplings that are made by hand but um ravioli i i did once pay over 20 dollars for three ravioli <laughs> right i i've done that for sure and there's... it was delicious but yes. i'm just saying that if you gave me three you know, pieces of dim
0: sum for $20, I, I flipped the table. <laughs> yeah, that's exact. Well, and remember, I feel like when Lai Wahin uh, emerged, that was like the most expensive dim sum in the city. And there was a lot of raised eyebrows about like, who are these people and why are they charging so much for dim sum? Uh, right. Because you can get it for this low price. What, how much better could it possibly be? right was yes. a lot of that discussion yet at the same time uh i am quite confident i've i've been served it myself that three that twenty dollar three ravioli plate comes uh arrives to you as though like the angel sent it down you know yeah well, it, it comes shrouded with all of this <laughs> the chef did all these mysterious wonderful things to the you know in his hand with the pasta whereas we don't at all have that uh, attitude about dumplings
1: Well, I think that's a huge part of it. And like I said, it can be, I mean, once you have a, um, like a fine dining restaurant, then that changes things a little bit. So I, whether it's an Indian restaurant, Chinese restaurant, Italian restaurant, because you know, you're also paying for the staff and the atmosphere and the location and the, the real tablecloth. Um, but in anything else that's remotely casual, there is just this, um, this assumption that foods from certain cultures should always remain a bargain. Right. And right. that I, you know, I'm happy to see that it gets raised a lot. You know, people uh, I've seen comments on, on Instagram posts where it's like, Oh, you know, $18 for those Chinese noodles. That seems too much. Hmm. And uh, which it is on the higher side, you know, but like there's, there's shrimp in it or there's whatever else in it. And they, and you know what, maybe that's what the dish actually should cost because the margins are so low uh, in Food service to begin with that you're banking on volume in many cases but also like foods from a lot of other countries and cultures are very labor intensive there's a lot of cutting and chopping and totally and and hand handiwork that goes into making a lot you know these dishes and hand-pulled noodles they're there they're made right in front of you not by a machine yet you still want them for $6.
0: And and there are so many examples of uh, cooks and restaurants who have attempted to raise their prices uh, to just just more accurately reflect, one, the cost of actually producing that food, and two, other things like uh, inflation and cost of living and that sort of thing. And they are almost always met with strong resistance from their customership. Uh, Yeah, and I think...
1: Yeah. And, and I think it's something that we have to acknowledge as customers and as consumers who are able to uh, who are able to dine out or who, who have the means to that this costs this costs someone time and money, but also, you know, there's there's their rent. There's all these things. And now, you know, there's a the takeout containers. I remember because my parents all packaged everything for takeout. Right. Um, that. The people, you know, my mom be like, oh my god, the forks. Like people will just grab handfuls of plastic forks and napkins. Everything costs the money. So there those things aren't free. Like as the customer, we assume that these things are just free. Like we we should have all these extra uh items. But there's an actual there's an actual um price associated with. The food itself, and then it's the person who made the food so that you don't have to. And I think there is, there has been a shift in the way people think in recent years, which I'm happy to see, but it's just needs to spread a little quicker and yes. for people to understand that, you know what, maybe this person is, is not truly making a living by um, selling their food yes. for such a low amount. Uh, they deserve to make a living as well, like a proper living, not one where you're working sixteen-hour days.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and and that's that's it. It's and it's it's trickier, I think, to push people to recognize the fact that up until this point, it's it has already been a pretty exploitative uh, arrangement. You know that people were not uh, doing well, and that that's not uh, uh an eight-dollar plate of noodles does not give somebody a good living wage.
1: Yeah, and, and and that we were used to certain foods being, you know, really cheap and affordable and not costing us a lot of money. Yep. Uh, and maybe all along, we've just been very fortunate to have not paid a lot of money, but it's time that we level the playing field.
0: Okay, pay. We're going to talk about David Chang. Uh, I'm talking about the man behind the Momofuku now empire, um, but he has just released a memoir called Eat a Peach. uh, And in it, he talks a lot about his own life and his own experiences. He's quite open and confessional, particularly about his own, uh, his rage and his relationship with his rage and what the impact of that has been on his ability to lead his team. Uh, Right. And it I remember when it came out in the in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, obviously, he didn't necessarily time that, but it was it was super interesting. I actually was curious because it feels early in his career and his life to actually be writing a memoir at all uh right so i was like what mm-hmm. what, what what's going on here you he <laughs> feels like you're really young to be doing this kind of thing uh and then to hear about how he just sort of like laid it all out there about his about his anger uh and and about how problematic that has been in his ability to lead and run his teams um and uh and I I like I what did you hear about this when the memoir came out? Did you did you hear any sort of rumblings about the fact that he had done this thing? Um I I didn't pay
1: a lot of attention to it. I okay. saw, you know, when it was released and I thought um okay, well, you know, good for him. He's had right, right. such an interesting career that you know, if it's like a biography of some right, sort right. in terms of how, you know, he went from this noodle bar to this you know, huge franchise restaurant empire, um, that that would be quite interesting. I don't know that I had thought much about him as a person or a mm-hmm. chef, like always knew who he was when he opened the place in the Shangri-La hotel in Toronto, for example, I knew that was, there was a lot of buzz, right. Cause he right. Was a big name and suddenly there was a place that would have an association with him and milk bar, um, and it wouldn't have shocked me if someone had said oh well he's a chef of the temper I'd be like yeah yeah well yeah, yeah. you know uh i've watched gordon ramsay on tv i sure. get it it you know there's there's that element i i think it's um immature and it, it should be and i couldn't believe that such behavior was accepted but i think that was the case for a lot of people which is well you know there's a lot of pressure on these chefs and uh you know when you're cooking dinner for x number of people you know, it's it is extremely stressful. Therefore, mm. does that justify the anger right, and right. The it warrants? That it. was how people gave it a pass anyway. Um, but then there was the article in Eater from a former employee who kind of dissected yes. the way he wrote his his book and really focused more on how he just tore down a lot of people. And I thought that uh that story was very interesting by um, Hannah Sellinger. Yes, yes, and her take on the way he behaved and how he acted like in his book that he was, I don't know, was he looking for forgiveness or was he just saying like, oh, I've had a huge piece of humble pie and then you can kind of just uh, wipe your hands of it and, and move on? And she's saying, no, 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 he didn't spend enough time actually mm-hmm. acknowledging who he hurt and and truly apologizing for it. So. Her take was very interesting, and I think we'll see a lot more of that, um, I don't know, going forward, where people are saying, like, hold up now, I'm not afraid to speak up, because that's the thing. The staff had to sign NDA, so they couldn't talk about what happened Right.
0: Which, I mean, already feels like a bit of a red flag to me, No. Uh being a I mean, if you have to sign an NDA to work at a restaurant. To be a cook, it just seems yeah. crazy, right? there has gotta totally be crazy.
1: There's problems there. But we have seen in recent years uh big powerful names, and let's be honest, mostly men. Yep. Um, who've been able to get away with certain types of behavior because they were, you know, known, popular, had money. And we've seen usually women coming out, and especially in the you know, Me Too movement. Mm-hmm saying this is what was happening this is what was going on uh and and finally feeling like they were able to speak out and have a voice because people were were paying attention and I know that they still get a lot of backlash I think for example locally in terms of Ontario you know Norm Hardy for example yes, yes, How yes. when that came out uh, whereas the David Chang one is not about uh sexual harassment mm-hmm. or abuse necessarily Uh, towards or from him, but more about the way he would treat his employees, which when you read about it, is amazing that it went on as long as it did without gaining any sort of uh, mainstream attention. And maybe it's because people just thought like, oh, that's, he's allowed that because he's David Chang, which is no longer
0: an excuse. Right? Well, I I agree with you. I think That because there was so much about his emergence and Momofuku's emergence that was really sort of against the canon of things, you know, it was a bit subversive and, you know, and that sort of thing. That we somehow accepted that, uh, that his poor behavior was sort of a prerequisite to produce this really fascinating different bit of culture that he had offered up, you know?
1: Yeah, it's like he's some sort of tortured artist, and I, yes, and I really yes. wish he would stop thinking about food people that way. Like, oh, but they're so creative, they're so artistic. But he's a yes. We allow them this pass, and it's like, well, no. He actually, he he made his staff cry. He would yell at them during dinner service in front of customers. He and then he apparently in his book um, would almost justify it, but kind of explain it away. Like, um, oh, I I understand now that that was wrong. Well. Okay, and then he just moves on.
0: Well, this is it. It's it. I I don't. Uh, I'm left wondering if he is uh, like a an, a huge horrible jerk or uh, an incredibly. Uh, sophisticated, you know what I mean. Has he just really sort of navigated this with a lot of style and uh, you know and and artful kind of maneuverings? Because he seems to have absolved himself of responsibility by throwing his poor mental health and his uh, well, clearly it sounds like there's some solid daddy issues uh, out in his own defense.
1: Well, I think you know there's a lot of people who who have had very traumatic uh, situations in their lives. Who aren't terrible people? Yes, yes. So, though it may have given you uh, a more difficult start, and it can, of course, it can carry on through your, you know, adult life, and it can come up again. Um, but going into detail about his upbringing or his past in order to justify years of verbal abuse, uh, actually. Doesn't make you take responsibility for it. You're just giving everyone your excuse. I agree. So, you know, I don't think somebody's all bad or all good. I think you can be little bits of both. And perhaps the good thing is that he seems to have acknowledged. Uh, that he was a terrible person, right uh, and he's made efforts in some ways, and I hope most people would uh, to be better. and I think you know, having a family has probably changed him, you yes. know, having kids has probably changed him. um and you know, seeing these stories come out about him, hopefully you can internalize some of that versus just dismissing it and going like, "Oh well, yeah, that was ten years ago, and you know, I was going through a really hard period at that time. right That actually doesn't do a whole lot to
0: make the victim of your verbal abuse uh feel much better yeah i agree uh and uh, like uh, uh hannah who wrote this piece i would if if i was a victim of his rage and his you know his horrible be- uh, treatment i would be really insulted by that uh right absolutely and
1: you can understand when why she would stay in this job she was paid very well in this yep. job um it was a job that she knew she probably couldn't replace very easily. And then when you see that this is like the culture and you're just supposed to just like suck it up and accept it, it's it's hard to be the one to speak out or to be the whistleblower. And also, even if you did try to say something, in many cases, um, in these situations, people aren't gonna do anything. It's like, well, then you're gone, you're fired. So what did that do?
0: Exactly, exactly. And this really, you've really prompted my thinking too about the fact that we can really pin a lot of this on the fact that we insist on still using that brigade system in a, in terms of our, the organization of the kitchen, right? And what's so important there is the fact that the chef is always at the top with uncontested power and authority.
1: Yes, and also I think you know, for consumers and and customers, um, the way we idolize chefs, mm. but and are willing to turn a blind eye. Um, to their behavior or actions is is not acceptable and we enable these sorts of um, this type of behavior when we idolize someone who is actually uh, could be a terrible person or a real jerk or treats their people poorly you know takes advantage of their staff there are all these issues that we should look at the person as a whole like we would with most people that we encounter but it's a bit of that rock star syndrome, which uh, has, I think, clouded our visions uh, in terms of certain types of people, right?
0: I totally agree with you. And I wonder so often if, you know, while we're sitting in that sort of bustling dining room and waiting for our ramen or our noodles to show up, if we would be as excited about consuming them if we knew what the full cost of producing them really was, right? Would we be as excited about those bao if we knew about how much- uh, beratement and degradation and and humiliation was required uh, to produce them. I I I'd like. I hope that the answer would be no.
1: Yeah, like I mean, can you taste the tears? Right. Well-
0: <laughs> I I actually think you can, but that is that's more me, right? Oh, you know, this is this is connecting to the fact that we uh, the the one of the trends for 2021 was kindness and and a rethink of our industry. Uh, right, so this this is all playing into this very same thought. I think.
1: Well, then I hope hopefully this trend uh, comes to fruition.
0: Yes, we've got our fingers deeply crossed for this because <laughs> it's, it's our industry sorely, sorely needs this little revolution. Yeah. If you're enjoying our podcast, you can support us at Patreon.com/slash HotplatePod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow Pay on social. media, media at Pei Chen on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow me at Joshna Maharaj on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato and Dennis Coyne with original music by Dave Bell. Thanks for listening.